Alright, today we're going to talk about the life and times of William Shakespeare, just a brief introduction, and then we're going to get into the play of Macbeth itself. I'll explain a little bit of the background of the play and some of uh, what's happening with the initial combat that's explained in the first couple scenes, talk about the weird sisters a little bit and whether they're real, whether they're in Macbeth's head, and um, then that's all the time we're going to have. So, Shakespeare, his life and times. This is a very famous picture of William Shakespeare here, often shown with that sort of cobra-like hood uh, beneath his head, the small mustache, uh, the sort of tonsured top to his head that means bald with sort of a mullet coming off his side as the style would have been in 17th century England near the end of his life, 16th century in the beginning. And so let's talk about some basic facts. He was born 1564, he died 1616. In fact, it's pretty impressive that he lived for so long because it was it was a feature of that time that A, there was plague about. In fact, uh, the theater shut down two years during the course of his career because of plague. Can you even imagine that, that maybe you missed two straight years of school because of plague? You might think that'd be fun, maybe for the first five days, but then think about this. A, you're scared of plague. B, you're scared all your friends and family are going to die of plague. And C, what do you think you're doing all that time while you're afraid of everybody? Probably staying quarantined, probably staying inside, probably not that fun. In any case, he was born in the 16th century, he died in the 17th century, and unfortunately, again, talking about uh, negative medical ailments that can afflict you in historical time. Um, also, it was very common, uh, even, even until the beginning of the 20th century, for young children to die. The world is a very difficult place, you have to build up that immunity with your immune system. And um, just as Charles Darwin had three children die, also one of his beloved children Hamnet died on him as well. Ah, yes, his parents. His parents were known to be John and Mary Arden Shakespeare. In fact, one of the very famous editions of Shakespeare's books are called the Arden Shakespeare's. They're very beautiful. They have very tight spines. They have wonderful notes. They're hard to read, though, um, just, because, just because of those spines, if you ever get one, though. I, I often like to read the Folgers, but I like to have the Ardens. Uh, John was a local glove maker and politician. I was listening to some more information about him recently. He, he apparently did uh, do some uh, dark dealings, though, because he did lose his money at some point. In fact, he lost his money while William Shakespeare was in, in school and had to pull him out, even though I think at some point he was at a preschool. Uh, but that's something that we will talk about soon enough, soon enough. And we're going to have to move fairly quickly today. In any case, this is the location of Stratford-upon-Apon. The Avon. This here is the British Isle. This is Britannia, England. Um, in England, there are four different discrete places, and these people will let you know about it. There's Wales. They call themselves the Welsh. There's Scotland. They call themselves the Scottish. There's Ireland, and there is England itself. In fact, this play is going to take place in Scotland. Scotland, uh, when it was divided into thanes, uh, who were like dukes of the Scottish, and while they were trying to repel Norwegian forces, who were the Norwegians? They were the Vikings. They were the Vikings. All right. And so the British Isles were a common, they're fairly close to Norway. They would have been a fairly common, um, a fairly common place to attack, especially their abbeys uh, for the Vikings. In fact, if you've ever watched the show Vikings, you'll get to see that happen. There's a huge slaughter. That said, let's keep moving. I have a couple more pictures here. Here's the plan of Stratford itself, the city in which he grew up. You'll notice it's not very big. It's a very small sort of place. It's hard to maintain large groups of people without good plumbing, especially nowadays without, or 
if, huh, without electricity, which they, of course, did not have. But it's hard to have the sort of super cities that we do. And I have another image here. Here's another plan, looking very nice. How it looks today, a little bit bigger, still not that much more advanced. Britain's a pretty small place. All right, nice wood here. Okay, good, showing lots of images. Now let's get into things. All right, Shakespeare's education. This is subject to many scholars' um, rigorous thinking. In any case, people always wonder about Shakespeare. How is it the case that he seems to have only been educated until middle school, and then he can write in such a beautiful way? Of course, he is one of the people, alongside the King James Bible, who developed... Uh, early modern English, or the language that we speak. Of course, there's Old English, which was uh, what Beowulf was written in. We'll have a slide about that soon. There's Middle English, which Geoffrey Chaucer wrote in. And then there's Early Modern English, which is what Shakespeare wrote in. And I'll actually give you a list of uh, expressions that he coined. I think you'll find that you know many of them. And if you don't know all of them, well, you'll learn many of them over the course of your lives. So he probably attended King's New School in Stratford. His school day was long and rigorous. In fact, I have it on good evidence that what they would do is 8 to 12 in the morning, they would study Latin. 1 to 5 in the afternoon, they would study Latin. So it was 8 hours a day of language study. In fact, you might say, why did they study Latin so much? Because it was the legal language of that time. And if you were going to write anything, a legal brief, or if you were going to write a scientific treatise, or a philosophical treatise, guess what language you would write it in? Latin, and even to this day in our universities, often it is the case that when you receive a diploma from your undergraduate education, it is written in Latin. And if you look through those beautiful libraries that you will have access to when you go to a university, you will find many, many, many texts in Latin. And I can show you some Latin at some point. But in any case, he really had to study hard for the time he was in school. Their education was, and I don't mean to talk smack on our educational system, but it was very, very rigorous. Very, very rigorous. They studied rhetoric, logic, history, Latin. You can see there are two parts of the trivium that we mentioned during our time in the Divine Comedy. Uh, rhetoric is the art of persuasion, the art of writing and speaking beautifully. Logic is the art by which you can argument. It's called deliberation or argumentation. It teaches you how to debate uh, and to conduct philosophy. <coughs> history teaches you about where you exist in the world. And Latin, of course, is the language. It was the lingua franci in some ways. Um, though, of course, English was mostly spoken. It was the language of the intellectuals. It was the language of those who were literate and literary, those who could read. Supposedly, he dropped out of middle school when his father dropped his, lost his fortune, just as I had said earlier on. All right. And so, one of the big questions is, man, what really is the connection between artistic genius and education, if it is the case that our greatest poet ever to have existed in the English language, even against names like Yeats, Keats, Dunn, and, um, of course, Milton. How is it that he can write so beautifully, even though he only had half of an education? And the answer seems to be, well, genius is genius, and potentially he studied quite a bit on his own. Uh, one of the Roman poets that we don't read very much, but that he read quite a bit from and derived much of his information from was Ovid. Ovid, who wrote the Metamorphoses, who I sometimes mention. Uh, perhaps you read a little bit of him last year, the the dispute between Odysseus, or Ulysses, and Aias the Greater comes from Ovid. Something like three-fourths of Shakespeare's plays have uh, material from Ovid's corpus. And so, he was a big fan of Ovid. Ovid was to him, in some ways, what Virgil was to Dante. 
which is interesting because he wrote comedies as well as tragedies. King's New School, ah yes, this is where he went, it looks like a pretty place to go. Married life, ah yes. Matrimonial bliss. He was married to a name that you will probably recognize. I don't know if this is actually this Hollywood actress's name or if she just took this as a stage name because it was so famous, but perhaps you recognize the name Anne Hathaway. Very famous actress. Do any of you know any of the movies she's been in? I know there was one with Robert De Niro. It's called something like The Dad or something. I don't know what it's called. She owns a company. He comes to work for her. Any of you know that? I don't know. I just remember her being in the first um, Alice in Wonderland as the White Queen. She didn't really know what to do with her hands the whole time, which was really interesting. And then she's been in a host of other movies. She does seem to be one of our leading ladies today, and I think she's in a recent work as well. In any case, her name comes from this Anne Hathaway, who is very famously Shakespeare's wife, married to him in 1582. Something interesting about this, I don't have all this information here, is according to marriage records, she, he was 18, she was 26. Mm. Mm, yes, yes, I know, I know. Record keeping wasn't that great at that time, though, so the actual marriage certificate that we have uh, that was kept by the local abbey. That's a thing that the churches used to do since they had literate people who could write. They would keep records of people who were born, people who got christened, people who died, and people getting married. And so you might be like, why does the church exist? It's like, well, at the very least, keep a record of your what? Your marriage, your birth, and your death, your existence itself. And uh, so supposedly she was 26. I think in the actual, so what I was saying, I think in the actual document itself, Shakespeare's name is not spelled in, uh, as Shakespeare. It's called like Shakespeare or something like that, but we just assume based on that. Something interesting about English that you might not know is that English didn't have standardized spelling at this time. So you just make up how you spell things. You just kind of sound it out and then write it out. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and in fact, that is, uh, I will make a small point based on that for Shakespeare's place because something you should know is this. He didn't usually write out his plays in book form. It was very expensive to publish a book at this time. And so what he would do is he would fill out the parts for each actor in what were called quartos. Quartos like a quarter of what actually exists. And he would dole that out to his uh, players. Something interesting about that is then some of those players would then take the characters they played with them and try and reproduce the entire play. And so scholars these days have had to take several quartos together with many of his plays and try and put those plays back together because he didn't actually write them down. Two reasons for this. A, very expensive to publish a book. I think only 18 of his 36 plays were actually published during the course of his life. Later they would be published in what's called the folios, and there are like two folios, and one of them actually came to our San Diego library two years ago, and I got to see it, and it was pretty cool. But had I been teaching Macbeth at that time, it would have been even cooler. Another reason is this. If you don't write all your stuff down all in the same place, what can other playwrights not do to your work? Steal it. It made it easier to keep your stuff from being stolen. Good. All right. Ah, hmm. uh, yes. As I was saying, very uh, lovingly at first, but sadly, secondly, Anne Hathaway and Shakespeare had two beautiful children. Hamnet, they were twins, and Judith, three years after they married in 1585. Hamnet, some scholars believe, gave his name to Hamlet, the greatest of Shakespeare's plays, uh, and the greatest of his tragedies, and uh, Judith, too, of course. Something interesting to note about that is um, Shakespeare, over a period of three years, wrote his four great tragedies, uh, Hamlet, King Lear, 
Othello, and Macbeth. Macbeth was the final of all of those tragedies, and also the shortest of them as well, which makes it pretty convenient to teach if we don't have a lot of time in the remainder of the year. That said, it is also the culmination, and so it works. It works. Sometime between, ah yes, this is very famous, the so-called, uh, the move of Shakespeare. There are some that believe that the reason that he moved in 1583 was because of some shady business. I, I'll have to look it up again precisely what it was that happened, but he got involved in something that required that he leave town, some scholars suggest. And so sometime between 1583 and 1592, he moved to London and began working in the theater. Now something I want you to notice about this, especially if you ever hear somebody argue that you shouldn't read Shakespeare, is you need to understand who he was and what his position within the world was. There were these men at the time called the university uh, playwrights, and amongst them was the very famous uh, Christopher Marlowe, who wrote the tragical comedy of Dr. Faustus, which is a play about a man selling his soul, a professor selling his soul to the devil, which will later uh, be replicated in, and improved by Goethe, the great German poet, in his work Faust, which I would really like you all to read as seniors. Again, seeing another figure of Lucifer there. In any case, these university playwrights, they were elites. They wrote from their university walls. They didn't have to get their hands dirty. They didn't even necessarily like theater folk, the great unwashed masses who would go and stand beneath uh, plays. In fact, there's some evidence that during certain plays, Shakespeare would actually, during something that's like a halftime, something, during something of a halftime show, uh, actually disseminate a bear. There would actually be a live bear that would come out. And there is a stage direction in one of his plays, I can't recall which at this moment, where it actually says, enter bear, uh, which is sort of funny. In any case, Shakespeare did not start at the top. He supposedly worked every single job possible in the British stage, uh, at a British stage company, from being like a doorman, up to being an actor, up to being a leading actor, up to being a director, up to being a writer as well. And so he was looked down upon by his contemporaries. In fact, one of them, it, on his deathbed, wrote a missive uh, uh, attacking Shakespeare, saying that he was some upstart who thought he could write in blank verse, that's the verse he often writes in, um, and could put tragedies and comedies alongside those of the current greats. So he was not an elite. He, did, he came from the masses. He came from the people. He didn't have a great education, didn't go to Oxford, was not super rich, had a sort of disgraced father who ran out of money, and yet still becomes the greatest playwright we have ever known. Ah, yes. And 1583 to 1592, just know that they are sometimes called the lost years. We don't have a lot of evidence of what was happening then. Uh, record keeping was not that great at this particular time, especially with the cost of, uh, you know, the cost of the education necessary to write and of maintaining records. All right, all right. Here's Anne, Hath Anne Hathaway's co cottage. Looks very pretty, very nice. Good animation here. Theater career. All right. As I was sort of saying, and I have one piece of information here that doesn't really fit, but I just thought I'd put it there so I could say something about it soon. He was a member and later part owner of what were first called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, later called the King's Men. So if you've ever seen that movie with uh, Colin Firth and that young guy named Iggy in the movie called the King's Men, the idea behind them is that they are named for Shakespeare's players because all the world's a stage and they just play their merry roles. The Globe Theatre, which 
uh, uh, Shakespeare had his performances performed in, his plays performed in, was built in 1599 when he was around 35, with Shakespeare as the primary investor. So he obviously made some money from his plays, so they had to be interesting. They had to appeal not only to monarchs, but also to common folks, so they would pay their hard-earned money to come in there. Um, unfortunately, the Globe burned down in 1613 during one of Shakespeare's plays, so that must have been a really good show. That said, it's been rebuilt. You can still go there in England if you visit. And we do ourselves have a, um, a replica of that in San Diego. We call it the Old Globe Theater. Something besides the fact that Shakespeare lived through plague in his life that I just also wanted to mention, because this is something we haven't yet run into, is that during the course of Shakespeare's life, there was some uh, antagonism between the Protestants and the Catholics. Like during... Uh, during Dante's life, there were only Catholics. There were also uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians. There had been an initial schism, but there has been a second schism since then, and a schism that still racks our world, truly speaking. Um, and that was uh, between Protestants and Catholics. And at this time, the church, the Church of England, was a Protestant church, and they had moved away from Catholicism. Well, a major plot was hatched, and I'll give you more information on this soon because it's very famous. It was called the Guy Fox, or it was called the Gunpowder Plot, but it was first propagated on remember, remember the what of November, the fifth of November, in sixteen o five. Where the sky Guy Fox took something like twenty barrels of gunpowder, which is a lot of explosive material, had it underneath Parliament, and was going to blow up Parliament in order to make a statement that England should become a Catholic country rather than a Protestant country. Well, to this day, it's a Protestant country. So, do you think he was successful? He was not. In fact, uh, one of the co-conspirators with him told his brother not to show up to Parliament on that day. He alerted security. Security went down to the dungeons, or it's either the dungeons or the basements, whatever was beneath Parliament at that time. Found Guy Fawkes there sitting on this, uh, <laughs> this gunpowder, and he was then tortured for three straight months until he was killed. Um, and so, that's sort of in the background. Of that is definitely in the background of Shakespeare's mind when he is writing Macbeth because he had had a play that he was going to show to James that was then inappropriate after that, so he had to write Macbeth quickly. So another reason why you might ask why is Macbeth so short is he had to write it in something like, I think it was like 20 days. I, I'll look up exactly how long it was. It might have even been 10 days. He had very little time to write this play in any case. Ah, yes, the Rebuilt Globe Theater. you ever been to Balboa Park? You've seen that we have a building very similar to this if you go into that area, uh, especially if you go inside, and uh, the seats are not very wide. I think we watched The Grinch in the one like that. Hmm. All right, something about his place. He was a very prolific writer because he made his money by writing, uh, sort of like a Stephen King from these days. He has 38 plays firmly attributed to him, though there have been some additions, some changes, some scribal errors. Sometimes scholars have to put the plays back together and they have to make guesses, sometimes even about which scenes go in which place. In fact, I'll very famously, I'll talk to you about a very famous scene, which is Act 3, Scene 5, where scholars are almost 100% certain because of the themes of it and the singing of the witches and just some odd uh, changes in tone that it was clearly an addition by uh, a fellow playwright of his called Thomas Middleton at that time. Um, but he is known to have had 14 comedies. I highly recommend that you see Much Ado About Nothing, as you like it, with the very famous Rosalind. And if you have a chance, any summer, go see A Midsummer's Night Dream. 
It will co connect very nicely to your classical knowledge of Roman and Greek mythology. Uh, as well as if you like things like fairies and fairy queens like Tatiana, it's just a very pleasant, funny play where a queen who is a fairy falls in love with a man who has been turned into, I believe, a goat. Or uh, he'll be called, uh, uh, not a goat, excuse me, of course a donkey. He's called Nass in the play. There are ten histories, some of the famous ones being Richard II, Richard III, Henry IV, Henry IV, Part II. You find some of his favorite, favorite, uh, most famous characters, Hal, who is Richard, uh, as well as Falstaff, his great knight. Ten tragedies. Of course, you all know about Romeo and Juliet. You should now know about Hamlet, his greatest psychological tragedy. Othello, where he has his greatest vil villain named Iago, one of his great intellects. Um, King Lear, where you see a major fall from glory, precipitated by the lack of love or love by a daughter for her father. And Macbeth, where a man's lust for power destroys not only him, but his kingdom and his people, but potentially also unifies them together against him. He himself becomes sort of a figure for Lucifer or the devil. And of course, four romances. I, I imagine I should have been saying... Uh, Romeo and Juliet there. That is what most high school students know that he made, especially during my day and age when the Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio version came out. Has anybody ever seen that one? Sort of weird. It's like they have guns and stuff, but they use the Shakespearean language. Maybe I'll watch that soon. That, is, that will actually be being played in our old globe in August, if you're interested in that sort of thing. As You Like It, I believe, is being played in June. So we're very lucky to have Shakespeare performed around here. Not everybody can say that. All right, possibly wrote three others, collaborated on several other plays. All right, the poetry itself. He had two major poems, know these poems. And I believe he wrote both of these during his time, during the plague, when he could not write his uh, plays. Something claimed about Shakespeare. You'll notice that his language is very ornate, very beautiful, not normal sort of language. And so a claim that is often made about him, that perhaps I'll have you write about, is that he was a poet who had to write plays. So... Had he been a courtly sort and uh, born to wealth and able to sit around as a court poet, probably what he would have written were poems. And he did write many, many, many famous poets. He even had a sort of poetry named for him. It's called the Shakespearean Sonnet. It's 11 lines. I think each line has something like 10 or 11 syllables. I can look that up for you. And there's often a change in theme in the last couplet. Um, his two major poems are Venus and Adonis. We know those words very well, because we know Venus, she's Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Adonis, of course, was a very beautiful youth that she fell in love with. Um, and who would not have anyone else. And then, of course, a very famous, um, extremely famous um, historical event from Roman history, perpetrated by the Roman king, I believe Tarquin, was the rape of Lucretia. Uh, it was too much, and I'll give you some more information about that sin. I think I bring that up for a moment during the Aeneid in the freshman year, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Numerous other poems he wrote are his death. So, those who come to be and live will someday die, sadly enough, but that's true for Shakespeare. He died on April 23rd, 1616. We, we say that. We don't know exactly. Uh, I think we know what day he died, but we're not necessarily sure which day he lived. But because of our desire to make parallels, we say that he was born on 423, as well as well as dying on 423. That is Shakespeare's birthday. It's also my girlfriend's birthday, which is interesting. Perhaps she'll be some great literary talent. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was he died from, but history says 
that potentially he drank too much wine and ate too many pickled herrings. So it looks like which uh, sin from Dante's Inferno might have gotten him. Gluttony. Gluttony. Yes, just like Portiaco, the pig man, in Sphere, or not Sphere, but, sorry, Circle 3. In his will, like Shakespeare left money, horses, stables, to his two sons-in-law, uh, the husbands of his daughters. But, <laughs> funnily enough, perhaps funnily, perhaps rudely, he only left his wife one thing. And uh, very Odyssean here, or the opposite of Odysseus in some ways. The second best bed is what he left to her. Was he trying to make some sort of point? I don't know. I don't particularly know. But that is, in his will, what he left to his wife. Uh, which, huh, who knows what that means. It doesn't seem like they had the best possible marriage. All right. More on his death. Shakespeare is buried in Holy Trinity Church, which was in his birth village of Stratford, his grave is covered by a flat stone that bears an epitaph warning of a curse to come upon anyone who moves his bones. So, ooh, don't move those bones. I think I'd probably want that on my epitaph, too. A curse on you who moves my bones like Pharaoh's gold. Or something like that. Good, 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 good. All right. It's not looking like we're going to get through too much more of this, but that's okay because we're learning important things. So, like I said earlier, Shakespeare's language. He did not write in Old English. Uh, one of the Old English texts that we have uh, that was studied actually by J.R.R. Tolkien and actually translated by J.R.R. Tolkien and from which he derived uh, many of the motifs that he put in his Hobbit as well as Lord of the Rings, like having a big dragon that afflicts the people, was Beowulf. And in fact, there's a modern translation by Tolkien that you can buy these days. And it does figure around uh, this terrible creature named Grendel uh, coming to afflict these Vikings. And Beowulf has to defeat him, and then eventually being sort of defeated by this terrible dragon, who he actually, in sort of a cane with sin-like way, mates with, creates another dragon with that then uh, comes to burn down his castle. It's almost like the things you do that are evil come back to haunt you. That will be a major theme in Macbeth. In fact, a big major theme that I want you to just put in your heads right now for Macbeth is that the things you do afflict you both internally and externally in this world. And so, Old English is the language of Beowulf. Hwet, we gardena in giardagum. And I can't even pronounce some of these words because I don't know how to pronounce that weird P letter or that D-A letter or that ash there. You can't even really read Old English. It's hard. It needs to be totally translated for you. It doesn't look like anything that you've seen. You can tell that that French and Latin influence on our language has been civilizing because this is what we used to speak. And, well, it's a little bit gnarly. In any case, he also did not write in so-called Middle English. It's a real pet peeve of mine when people get this wrong. Middle English, like I told you, it was the language of Chaucer, who wrote uh, a very famous poem on Sir Gawain the Green Knight. It's a ghost story. Um, and Thomas Mallory, who wrote uh, Arthurian Legends. Um, I believe his famous work is Le Mort d'Arthur. Yes, the death of Arthur. We read it oft and find that he writes, orite, and this clerkus will it dewite, lay us that been in harping, been he found the furly thing. Sir Orthia. So, pretty tough to see that. You can see some words that uh, make sense. We read <coughs> often, and we try to write, and clerks will it, and white, they lay the been in harping, people harp, 
and then they find some furly thing. It's hard to understand it all. It makes a little bit of sense, not that much. You would need sort of a glossary or a dictionary alongside you for reading this sort of thing. Uh, all right, all right. Shakespeare wrote in what is called EME, or Early Modern English, sometimes abbreviated as EME, which is not so different from Modern English, which is what we speak, a contemporary language, except that it had some old holdovers and weird expressions. Also, he had the liberty to create his own expressions, many of which we continue to speak today. And I will uh, actually show you a list, I think, almost right now. There we go. Many words that we still use today from Shakespeare. This is the first slide. I'll give you a second one. I'll have you just sort of look at it a little bit because it's sort of insane. Uh, critical, we get that word from him. It comes from the Greek crinane, which means to divide something. Majestic comes from maior in Latin, which means greater. So like a mayor is a greater man. Uh, dwindle, to come down to nothing, to become small. You can tell that that's an English word because it's so ugly and full of, uh, now, or excuse me, full of consonants. And quite a few phrases as well. One fell swoop means something happens all at once. Flesh and blood, that means your family. Vanish into thin air, when something just disappears. The be-all and end-all, when something is the supreme example of something. I have, and here's, just take a look at this, this list here. The game is up. Things have come full circle. Jealousy is the green-eyed monster. Uh, fair and foul, those are, uh, of course, who play, what sport are fair and foul a part of in America? Baseball, right. Balls can be fair or foul. Let's see. Uh, I'm in a pickle. This is the naked truth. we got to break the ice. How many of your teachers have said expressions like this? And probably don't even know they came from Shakespeare. But who does? You're a real piece of work. That's a great one from Shakespeare. That's a very euphemistic saying, way of saying someone's good or bad. Bad, right. Exactly, exactly. You're a sorry sight. Love is blind. Wild goose chase. The world is my oyster. He has breathed his last, too much of a good thing, he's seen better days, good riddance to you, I've got a heart of gold, no, not slept a wink, what's done is done, exactly, look at all these expressions, they're incredible, I'm waiting with bated breath for the next one, and you gotta just wear your heart on your sleeve sometimes, students, and well, you know, you don't want to be the laughing stock of everybody around here. And all these expressions came from Shakespeare. Are you starting to see what I mean when I say that he helped to create the language that we speak? How many of you have used multiple of these expressions during the courses of your lives, or at least heard them? Right, of course. They're everyday parlance. And in fact, uh, you know, I hope, but I hope not to be dead as a doornail soon, but I will be at some point uh, after I've breathed my last. But Brave New World, that's a very famous story by Aldous Huxley about a dystopian future where people just take drugs and pursue pleasure of all sorts and have meaningless lives. And it, what's interesting is that people often argue whether Brave New World or 1984 by George Orwell, which is a tyrannical society that oppresses its people, which one is going to be the future. And it's just so interesting what an effect Shakespeare has had on people. All right, let's finish this up. His language itself at his time would have been a mix of old and very new expressions. And so he derived uh, some of his language from Ovid and Latin texts and that which came before him as well as creating with his own creative spirit. He had rural and urban words and images, something said about Socrates, is that Socrates did not use fancy words in order to express himself. Uh, sometimes Shakespeare did, but he also would use words that would have been bucolic or um, 
<coughs> considered low or country sorts of words. Country expressions like when I say y'all rather than you all and you think that I'm a rather country individual from the south. Um, though that is the only second person plural that we have that's one word in our language. Otherwise you have to say you guys, you people, you folks, whatever. Understandable by the lowest peasant and also the highest noble. That's the key to his success. Uh, Shakespeare is called a poet for every man. Poet for every man. In fact, the Every Man's Library, I believe, takes some credit or gives some credit to Shakespeare for the name that they chose for their publishing house. And so anybody can enjoy Shakespeare. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be poor. You can be any or all in between. Good, good, good. All right. A couple things about Elizabethan theatrical conventions. I think we only have two slides left here. Something you should know. So... They didn't have any electricity, so what time of day did they have to have their plays? In the afternoon. They had to have it during the day, because if you're going to do something at night, you need what? You need lights. Oh, wow, and this is a fast day, so actually we're going to have to finish here. I thought we were going to get through more, but, well, you know how it goes sometimes. Uh, come what may.